Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another Ogletree Deacons podcast. My name is Kevin Bland, and I'm here with shareholder place (laughs) safety attorney Karen Tynan out of our Sacramento office. Today, we have an interesting podcast in one of our series on the accidental podcast. Basically, it's a case study in workplace safety, and we're going to talk about an actual case and find out some interesting things that you can learn from a case that Karen actually litigated. Uh, we will go over some details, but there'll be we may have to change a couple things yeah. to protect the innocent, as they say, <laughs> or whatever, on documentaries, right? And so with that rough intro that I just gave, Karen. I love it, Kev. <laughs> tell us, what, what's this case uh, that you're going to talk about today? I want to talk about a case that went to trial that had some pretty interesting nuances. It was a Southern California case, and we had our trial, where is it at? Way out there in the middle of the boonies in that state building. You know? <laughs> San Bernardino? Uh, yeah. <laughs> And it was a bloodborne pathogen case. So, and that regulation mirrors the federal regulation and doesn't get litigated a lot, but um, it, it was an important case. And we had appealed uh, for violations of the bloodborne pathogen standard. And I think there are a couple of training uh, violations too. And in the course of the case, uh, certainly we tried to settle, right? We ended up doing some discovery, went to trial. And I think in that overarching process around the bloodborne pathogen standard, there are some lessons to be learned from some of the trial tactics that happened and also some of the discovery tactics. Uh, because, uh, you know, we don't have those form ROGs, right? Right, right? We don't have special ROGs. We don't have the request for admissions. So, you know, in our forum, Kevin, with the limited discovery, uh, I think it's important to talk about how discovery gets used in a case. Yeah, and Karen, we don't have those because we can't do those, right? <laughs> right, right. And and certainly a state like Washington does have special mm-hmm. interrogatories. Federal has them, right? Yes. No. And so that is a distinction because clients and sometimes practitioners in other states will say, well, when are you going to serve the RFAs? And I'll say, well, never. Or my favorite, I know this is a side, but why can't we do a motion for summary judgment? (laughs) Right. Because there's no no discovery to base it on. Right. Anyway, uh, we digress. So there were some interesting issues. You want to talk about some of the main interesting issues that that you came across in this thing? Sure. So, of course, we had with the bloodborne pathogen standard, you have the issue around exposure, right? Because they're trying to prove exposure to a bloodborne pathogen. And they had some witness problems. And I want to talk about that because I do think there are some lessons learned. So Cal OSHA was going to put on these witnesses to give evidence about exposure, right? And one of the things that as the case was moving towards trial, 
and we hadn't been able to settle because, you know, they couldn't get approval from up above and we couldn't change our business model for abatement. So one of the witnesses called me. Sure. They called me. And, um, one of their witnesses or one of no, our witnesses? One, one of, well, it was a, a witness, witness in the in case. It okay. wasn't an employee, right? And they had been gotten a reach out from Cal OSHA who called their cell phone at like 8 o'clock at night. And they just were like, why is Cal OSHA calling me at night? Why do they have my cell phone number? What's going on here? They want my address to subpoena me? What do you know about this? And I think that that goes to the fact that sometimes, whether it's an inspector reaching out, maybe it's someone on staff, it can just feel a little ham-handed. They're not being gentle with the witness, right? They're not being respectful. And then subsequently, this witness had a subpoena dropped on them. They were, you know, maybe a week later coming home and, you know, the process server jumps out of the bushes and gives them the subpoena. (laughs) People don't like that. Right. Right. You know, if I'm going to subpoena someone, unless it's super contentious and odd, I call people, I talk to them. Hey, you know, I don't want someone showing up on your doorstep. But, you know, do you want how do you want this to work? And, and, and let's face it. Don't you want the witness you're calling to be yes. comfortable and friendly? Yes. At the, at the onset. Right. And so that goes a lot to how you communicate with the witnesses throughout the case. Right. Right. And also, you know, how you approach them, how you maybe do serve them with a subpoena. Um, Do you do it cold? Do you give them a little courtesy call? I always like to communicate positively, even if there's a witness that I know, maybe they don't work at the company anymore. Maybe it's a third party that doesn't want to be involved. But I'm always respectful and communicative and try to have kind of a gentle hand, Kevin. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and I do uh, the same just as an example. I will usually, it, it, it's someone that is going and willing to come anyway, but because of something happens and they can't show up, they get a doctor, they get in a car accident, whatever it is, and I explain to them, the subpoena is a formality. Don't, right. you know, it's so that then I can say the judge, they were subpoenaed, they couldn't make it today. So right. it gives us a backstop to be able to continue the trial to a date that they can come or something to that effect. And, and when, whenever you try to force them, it just, right. you know, yeah. People don't like yeah. it just yeah. generally, it just feels invasive with that witness issue. There was another witness issue I want to talk about Kevin. And that is that one of the witnesses that was called by Cal OSHA showed up nice guy, kind of a third party. He, he was there at the scene but he didn't understand that he was going to get cross-examined. He said, hey, I got a subpoena. I showed up. I'm supposed to tell my story. I'm supposed to answer some questions. Well, buddy, you're going under oath. (laughs) Um, You're going to be sitting in that chair by the judge in the small room, and you're going to get cross-examined. And it's not that I'm saying I'm nasty about it or unduly aggressive, but I think it's important when you prepare witnesses or even if you talk to someone and maybe it's a last minute decision and they've got to understand the process because once they're uncomfortable, once they're irritated, maybe they're even a little angry. Woo, it makes it tough. What do you think, Kev? I agree with that completely. And I think it's important. We do this in witness prep here and I know you do this too, is we probably the first half hour of witness prep is just explaining how the process works. So yes. they have some, because com- a lot of them have never done it before. Right. And so just to understand how it's going to work, who's going to talk to them, 
what we're going to, what, how we're going to talk, the order in which things, what the judge does, what the sonographer, does, all right. that stuff. Give them a, they have to have a comfort level because it's a scary thing for folks that haven't right. been in this. And if you don't prepare them for what to expect, it can be disastrous. I agree. And so I'm like you, whenever I talk to witnesses, I really start with the process. I like to make them comfortable because I find that the more comfortable the witness is, the more confident they are and the more ready they are um, to testify. So uh, that was a mistake I saw on the other side. And this particular witness was there. Um, this work site had a couple of different entities and, you know, this guy said, hey, I was there to work for, and it was the big name of the company on the door. Well, that was the name of the company on the door, but his paycheck was a different company, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And so, you know, he testifies on direct. Yes, I was there, you know, for ABC company. That's what was on the door. And then he was completely unprepared. And then I show him a copy of the paycheck that says, you know, Z-E-Y company. <laughs> and he says, oh, yeah, that's right, too. And so, you know, really, he, he could have been much better prepared. And, and I really felt like it was a bit of a, a disservice to the poor guy. Right. And he probably had a bad experience and left there thinking, what is my California government doing? And right. I hate that as a as a person out here. Yeah. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, the truth is what we're trying yes. to get at and the facts. And if we can. A lot of times, maybe we disagree on the law, but if we can agree on the facts, then we can let the judge decide whether we're right or they're 100%. right. On the law, right? Uh, that reminds me of a, a case I had real quick as a digress yeah. on witnesses being called by the division. They called an ex-employee for them, and they took whatever was in the notes and whatever was that that they were did. I don't think they even prepared them. And w when I did my cross, it sounded like he was our witness. And in <laughs> fact, because he was telling the truth. Right. And, uh, and it, and it backfires. So it's so important, like you said, yes. to make sure they know why they're there, what they're testifying about, what kind of questions both sides may ask, that sort of thing. Right. And, and I think that's a good takeaway for employers and safety professionals and those that have that. Leading up to trial, there's some things that happen like discovery, right? Oh, yeah. So were there any uh, discovery issues that you think are noteworthy or lesson learned in this particular case? That's always helpful. Right. And so we've talked about how limited discovery is in California, which for some clients, it, they're disappointed. You know, we have to um, kind of level set with clients sometimes mm -hmm. on that. But in this case, it, one of the interesting factors, and I've had this happen in a few cases where demand is made to depose the CEO. Well, the CEO may or may not know. In this case, he was involved in, in the particular business activities. And so I did allow him to be deposed. I had another case where the CEO of a large company, we got a depot notice and I said, no, you know, I think there's some good California law that says you just don't get to depose the CEO because you want to. Right. And many times the CEO, they don't know about a guard on a machine or, or training or anything else. And I view it a little bit as a form of harassment. It's like, oh, we're going to get your CEO to make admissions. Well, if, if my CEO is not the person knowledgeable or qualified to testify to topics, I'm going to make sure that, that he doesn't do that. Right. And make any missteps. So, so that was one issue. We did end up having the the CEO 
depose and I was very happy with his testimony. He was a very experienced person who had been in other litigation. And I think it was very helpful because he had he had actually been through a trial before. So, you know, he was very cool, calm and collected. He let me kind of run the show and he was very comfortable. And I think that made him come off as confident. That's good. And effective. And I was very fortunate that way. We also had a CFO, kind of a CFO type deposed in that case. He did great. He was able to talk about the different entities that were operating that may have had some overlap or may not and and who was doing what. And I actually felt that that testimony was very helpful to us. And in that way, I think the discovery failed a bit from Cal OSHA. They gained information. Sometimes you depose people to gain information, right? Right. Sometimes you depose people because you want to really pinch them in on their story. Get sound bites. Yes. You have particular goals. Death positions are not for one single purpose, right? Right. And so I, I like talking about that case because it did have depositions of high-level people that there there was a tactic that the Kalosha attorneys were trying to use, and it just didn't quite work out the way they wanted. And you mentioned uh, depositions real quick. There are a lot of there are not a lot of depositions. Some nope. cases we have probably majority of the cases there aren't even one deposition in them. So even that right. was a little bit more discovery than we often get and do. So. Right. It's. I probably don't depose the inspector in an, over half of my cases. Yeah, you you do it more than I do, yes. and uh, the reason I don't uh, and is from a point that oftentimes because there's a lack yes. of discovery, I'm educating them on our right. strategy too much. There are exceptions to that, and I know right. we and we, we talk about that. There are times we will do it as a strategy, but a lot of times we're better off keeping our powder dry. Until the trial, and, right? And this is an example. I did not depose the inspector, right? Yeah. I wanted to catch them off guard on some of my trial strategies mm-hmm. and defenses. And so that is a good talking point, Kevin, because when you do depose an inspector, you're giving them a dry run. Yeah. You're letting them be better at trial. And so if I think I can really get, like you're talking about, those sound bites, if I can develop a defense, if I can show a lack of preponderance of evidence, that's when I'll depose an inspector. Or if I really want to try to leverage the case for settlement and I have the feeling that the inspector isn't really on the ball, they're out of their expertise. Maybe they're an EHS person that's really great when you're talking about parts per million, but I have a guarding case Mm -hmm. and they're just not able to really, I can tell from the file, they're... You know, and so I think it's a very careful decision to make. I agree with you. And so sometimes when clients will say, well, why aren't we deposing the inspector? Let's beat them up. Okay, I'll talk with you about let's talk about it and let's talk about the pros and the cons and what this will mean. Right. Right. It has to be strategic in nature for sure. Right. It's not like a civil case where you're automatically deposing the plaintiff, the supervisor, and the alleged bad actor that made the comment about someone's body parts. Right. And, and there's no interrogatories or requests for admissions to lock them in in their deposition and box them a lot of times either. Now we've we've got through discovery. We've had some settlement and all that. Did you go to trial? Yes, we went to trial in Southern California that quite a few days. 
This and, is going to get exciting. Let's hear about this. <laughs> well, you know, Cal OSHA had assigned two attorneys to the case, and I had litigated against one of them frequently, frequently. And and one other I've actually am really good friends with now. She's moved on to other things, and she's super bright, super smart. And one of the techniques that the Cal OSHA attorneys use was they called my client first before the inspector, right? They thought, oh, we're going to get them on there, you know, rattle them a little bit, try to pinch them in on their story. But we were prepared for that because I had had that happen many times where they're calling your client first or they see the management rep sitting there. And so my client was amazing and perfect. And of uh, course, <laughs> it was the CFO, right? What, what did I say in one of our other I don't go to trial on ones that I don't think I can win. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, we went to trial, and I want to say we were maybe day two. I had put my client back on, and we stopped the testimony for lunch, right? You know, and you're going to take an hour, maybe a little more because the judge has to go do emails. So, you leave at noon, you come back at 1 30. So we walk across the street to the, you know, Hawaiian burger place, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, we get back. Must have been in West Covina back then. We're in person, <laughs> yep, yeah. yep. And uh, so we get ready. The judge comes back in and says, you know, would you like to get back on the stand, Mr. CFO? And we're ready to go. He's he's had a good lunch and he gets back on the stand and I'm ready to get started. The court reporter's there ready to go. And the Kalosha attorney stands up. And says, Your Honor, I, I need to make a quick statement or make a quick point. And it kind of stops everything, right? And uh, I look at my client on the stand and I kind of give him those visual cues of, It's okay, okay. right? Yeah, don't worry. Yeah. And the attorney says, Your Honor will be withdrawing citation number two, something like that. And thought, oh, well, it's not going well for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the judge was kind of surprised because we didn't have an inkling, right? Right. And so the judge says, okay, so on the record, you're withdrawing. And the judge, you know, made this to make sure it was very clear in the record. And while the judge was doing that, I winked at my client on the stand and gave him the nod, like, this is a good thing. Because he wasn't sure. He's like, right. is this good withdrawing? What, withdraw? what does that mean? What does it, what does it mean? mean? Yeah. What's going on here? And so then I proceeded on. Of course, I had to cut out some questions because that citation didn't matter anymore. And that's the only time I've ever had anyone withdraw, like just spontaneously without us talking about it. Just they, I think they knew that they had some problems in the case and they were really trying to shift away from their problematic citation into what maybe they thought they were more effective about. And so finished up the trial, of course. Um, In that case, the judge kind of split the baby, you know, maybe upheld one, vacated another kind of thing. And But something important came out of that trial, post-trial. And usually post-trial, it's just the brief, right? Brief and done. Yeah. And then wait for six months to get a ruling. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You wait for six months and the client's like, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? Right. Very anticlimactic. Right. Another thing you got to prepare the client for. Right. So... But there is a regulation and my client, especially because they had been willing to settle and they felt like the lack of settlement was more related to political considerations and things like that. And so it's the only case I've ever had where I filed a motion for cost. And that's when you go, you got to allege arbitrary and capricious actions, right? Okay. You do it after trial under section 397. Uh, I think that's the right one. 
and you file that motion and that demand for reimbursement. There's a max yeah. on it. Yeah. So you don't, you go, if you spent 200,000 on attorney's fees doing this, you don't get 200,000 nope. out of the state, do you? What do you nope. get? Five. 5,000. That's the max of That's everything. Max. So you're going to, yeah. so it's a principled type yes. action to take. Right. right? And I yeah. told the client, I'm like, look, the chances of this getting granted are pretty small. Uh, he said, you know what? I'm doing it on principle. I want to, I want to really make a record that, you know, they've done this and there's really, you know, the citations should have never been issued. And the fact that they withdrew a citation, just all that. And so it, it got denied, but I'd like to mention it because many times clients will ask, Hey, is there a fee shifting? Yeah, yeah. Uh, way you know, are they going to prevailing pay? party award? Right, and and then we have to be the tough guys and mm-hmm. say, I'm really sorry. There's no fee shifting in this. There's at the end you can possibly get five thousand dollars, but it's an incredibly high bar. Right, and expensive because right. that's why I would say you're going to spend another twenty five thousand to try to get five thousand on principle. So yes, don't be mad at me if you say yes. I mean. <laughs> Even if you win. right? <laughs> so I think that kind of shares those lessons. I, I like talking about the witnesses, our deposition strategies, kind of a spontaneous withdrawal of a citation. And then that motion for costs, because we don't really talk about that, but we do get questions about how costs work in a Cal OSHA appeal. So that, that's, those are kind of my lessons learned. Oh, and a lot of great lessons. And there's a lot of meat on the bone on this one to, to, to learn from. And not very many cases have that many tricks and turns. To yeah, it. So that's, that, true. that's good for I'm hoping the folks listening uh, got something out of this from some of those some of those things that you experienced <laughs> first firsthand here. So uh, with that, I want to thank everyone to uh, for listening to Karen and I. Uh, look for our blog articles on ogletree.com. We've recorded uh, many webinars related to Cal Ocean workplace safety. There's articles, there's blog posts, there's other podcasts available. We have quite a few on there. Take care. Have a great day and a safe day. Yeah, be safe. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.